extreme poverty, defined as living on less than about $2 per person per day, has come way down over the last 40 years or so, from over 40% of the world's population to about 10% now. What led to this extraordinary achievement? Well, not charity and not foreign aid from rich countries. Rather, creating jobs, everything from self-employment to micro-businesses to large ones, and from agriculture to manufacturing to services. Most of this has been occurring in Latin America and especially Asia. Now it's Africa's turn. Today, Adrian and Eric interview David Sims, founder and managing partner of Talenton. Talenton's mission is to partner with people like you to help lift people from poverty through world-class impact investing. Their aim is to help you create and support tens of thousands of jobs by 2025. Stay tuned as we discuss what led David to found Talenton, its strategies, the stories of three of the fund's 12 portfolio companies, the risks, as well as the impact these companies are having right now on the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Welcome. You are listening to the Retirement Lifestyle Show with Roshan Lungani, Eric Olson, and Adrian Nicholson. This show is an exploration of ideas to help you work toward your ideal retirement. Get ready for the financial independence of your dreams. Welcome to the Retirement Lifestyle Show. I'm Eric Olson, joined today, as often is the case, by one of my co-hosts, Adrian Nicholson. Roshan could not be with us today. But today we have a fantastic topic and a special guest. That guest is David Sims, the managing partner and co and founder of Talenton Fund, which is an impact fund investing in growth stage, small and medium sized enterprises in Africa. And we're going to be talking with David about the genesis of that fund, his story and the portfolio companies in which they've invested as a both as a story in itself, as well as an introduction to you, our listener, about this kind of investing. Because let's face it, it's not common that we in the day-to-day work with financial advisors here in the United States are presented with opportunities to have impact investing that's directly working with operating companies in the developing world, and particularly those with a passion not only to see financial bottom, re- bottom line returns, but also social and income bottom line for the people that are working within these settings and transforming those societies, as well as potentially a spiritual impact in their lives. So we're excited, David, to have you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Eric and Adrian, I'm delighted to be here. So thanks for this opportunity. And Adrian, you, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks because I've been out, but it's great to be with you together again today. And I'm looking forward to some of your questions. Yes, I'm looking forward to today's podcast as well. I'm always excited when we have a guest on. So again, thanks for being here, David. I'm looking forward to it and ready to go. David, I don't want to embarrass you, but I do want to just share with our audience just your background because it is, it's, it's one of those sorts of those resumes or you know, stories about your own career path that at some level might seem for people surprising that you've gotten here, in, in, but at the same time, your career took a definite pivot toward poverty alleviation earlier on. And now this looks like in your case, 
Talenton is another expression of that story. So let me just outline for our listeners that, as I mentioned, David is the managing director and founder of Talenton. But what prior to really serving in this role, David was the executive chair of Opportunity International. And that group is a microfinance organization that served 12 million clients around the world, which I think, Dave, just that story itself would be probably worth having you come back and tell sometime because I think that the massive scale that you would have had on that would have just been ridiculous. And you, prior to that, had roles in an executive level in financial services, management consulting, government, nonprofits, and on. I see this, the path went through senior executive VP at MBNA America, CEO of the American Red Cross in the Washington, Baltimore blood services region, and a White House fellow. Plus, your career began at Bain & Company, which is not something that everyone can say. Finally, you had an MBA with distinction and a JD from Harvard. You earned two bachelor's degrees, one in econ and applied science from Pennsylvania, UPenn, and not on top of that, you're married and have a family and two adult sons and a daughter-in-law. Fantastic story. I think that is so great. Not to embarrass you, but that is just a really delightful journey, I'm sure. Well, Eric, thank you. I just feel like I've been blessed and I have a boatload of friends along the way from that from that journey. So happy to bring that those lessons learned to our audience today as best I can. Well, great. So, so let's start with Talenton as an organization and then particularly the fund. So just tell us the history of how it came. There was a day where you were not doing that. And then there was a day where you said, you know what, I ought to I had to start a fund and I had to pull some key people together and begin doing this. How and why does Talenton and the fund exist? Yeah, the shorter version of this is that you heard in your introduction, you mentioned that I'd been heavily involved in microfinance, which was true. And I love what we were able to do to stabilize and bring hope to people at the micro level. So $100, $200 loans. But one thing that we weren't able to do in those days was actually find a way that you could give people a ladder up out of poverty by giving them jobs. And most people in America don't understand that in a continent like Africa, only about 15% of people have a job with an income that comes with a paycheck. So they're farmers, they're miners, they're people out in the marketplace. And Talenton was founded as a way to try and create jobs for people that are trapped in poverty and really would like to have hope for a better future. And the simple solution to that is the same in the U.S. as it it is in Africa, small, medium enterprises. So companies that employ 10 to 250 people, let me just give that as a scope of where we may play frequently in our world, is to find a way that you can help those companies grow, scale, create jobs. And those jobs allow people to be working their way out of poverty, get their kids educated, get their kids well-fed and have hope for a brighter future. And Talenton was founded in order to do that. So did you start with some portfolio companies that you were aware of and that you thought, we just need to raise some capital, we'll start with one or two? Or was it more, no, let's first talk to some people, kind of get our capital lined up, and then we'll start doing a deeper dive on operating companies that we think would be able to deploy this capital in a way that would have an impact? No, I wish that were the case. But actually, the normal thing I heard from investors in the U.S. is that you can't found an SEC-registered fund mostly because you couldn't possibly go create a portfolio of companies that you're talking about that were going to create jobs. 
So we started with a group of committed friends, people in the faith community that said, we believe that this is really important and that if we're going to tackle poverty successfully, we needed a fund. And so I had some people that underwrote the startup costs and continue to help actually with the startup costs when we launched the fund. And we put together a team to then do the aggressive due diligence that was required in order to identify companies that we could invest in that would be the prototype of these are what we want to do at scale. And while that was five years ago that we started the journey, we made our first investment into Longmouth Coffee in July of 2019. We now have a portfolio of 12 of said companies. So now I have sort of the proof points of 12 companies with wonderful stories and 30 plus thousand jobs that have been created or supported over the last four years since that first investment. And that's the kind of thing that are getting people super excited about where we are now. That's great, David. And can you describe to our listeners and viewers uh, your maybe your initial role and maybe where you are today with this fund and really talk about the story and maybe what you sometimes did on a day-to-day basis and maybe some of the lessons that you've really learned with the role you played in all of this? Yeah, Adrian, that, that's great. Let me give you that your audience most likely doesn't know what the word Talentin means. And the founding story really starts with the way we named Talentin. Talentin is a Greek word that stands for talents out of the Bible. There's a story about the parable of the talents and One person takes five talents and invests five more, and then here is well done, good and faithful servant by the master. And we like that to be the model for what we're doing because we seek to invest wisely for people to hear well done, good and faithful servant. But the Bible keeps going on. And in Matthew 25, it says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done for me. So my role was to actually link those two parables together for investors that wanted to invest wisely, to multiply their investment for sure, but to do it while serving the least of these. So my role was to raise capital and then to build a team, lead the due diligence through the team, not just yours truly. We now have a team of 10 people that's doing this, a fabulous team of gifted people and others. But maybe if I were to just share sort of that first story, because we were focused on Africa, East Africa, because that's where we felt the need was the greatest. And I can get into that a little bit later if you want to know why Africa sort of is so compelling from a growth opportunity as an investment, as well as a ministry opportunity to create jobs for people in poverty. But the place that we actually ended up making our first investment is actually in Burundi, not a country that we were going to go to. And it was a coffee company that is employing thousands of people but needed growth capital to grow and scale. And so we became their supporter, their investor. And only afterwards did we come to understand that Burundi is the poorest country on the planet, so much so that the income per capita in Haiti is seven times higher than the income per capita in Burundi. Yet we found a way to take our investors on a journey and investing in a company that is paying good returns, but impacting thousands and thousands of jobs now among the poorest people in the poorest country on the planet. So when we talk about being an impact investor, it's that combination of financial return with what are you doing in the lives of the least of these? My role as the leader of the firm was to carry out that mission 
and to keep that tension of financial returns and sort of that social impact and the spiritual impact that we're hoping to see in the lives of people by giving them hope. That, that's my role is to build the team and raise the community that's excited about doing that. It's interesting you have emphasized jobs in this conversation, and even on your website, you highlight jobs and a quote from Gallup organization about the role that jobs play. I think there was some survey research that I said, it's not just income that people want because the income, well, of course, in the end, they want the income, but having a job as opposed to some, to just having income provides a certain degree of dependability and predictability, which is very stabilizing. And so uh, job creation opportunities themselves are a, a wonderful way to give a family the ability to do some longer-term planning. Yeah, Eric, exactly. And Gallup, who most of your audience here will know, has done millions of surveys in their, in, in their lifetime as a firm. And one of the most clear findings they've ever found across the entire planet is that when they ask people and they survey people about what they most want, they want a job because a job brings not only dignity and respect so it's not just a handout to people it's the dignity and the respect but with a job you also know that you have an opportunity to learn new skills you have an opportunity to advance in your career you have a regular opportunity to put income to do savings to plan for the future to have hope for the future and that's what all of us with jobs have and we know that without jobs anxiety and dependence and in the developing world, you know, civil strife and refugee flight, there's terrible things that happen in countries where there's no safety net for people without jobs. There's no welfare system in most of the countries or in any of the countries in which we work. So you started with that, that one portfolio company and that is that operating company still part of the portfolio? It, it is. We made an investment in them. It was a short-term trial to get off the ground. We did a working capital loan, which isn't typically what we did, but they paid us back relatively quickly within six months. And then we made a longer-term five-year loan into that investment, into that particular company. Uh, and we've not only seen that grow and thrive and the impact within Burundi grow by 50% since we first invested but we've actually now helped that company expand into Kenya and Uganda. So there, that one company has now grown to impact over 5,000 people's lives with jobs as coffee farmers. And what people don't understand, I mean, it's a longer story to just go into that one company, but nobody had helped the poor farmers in Burundi learn that they could make a really high-end specialty-grade coffee. They could grow a really high-end specialty-grade coffee. But nobody ever taught them that. And this company came in and taught them that. And for anybody that's kind of wired as a business people, if I just tell you that the specialty grade coffee will sell for six to eight times as much as a commodity grade coffee, you teach the farmers how to grow coffee, you get three to four times more coffee produced per acre. And if you build a community supporting one another to teach one another it's phenomenal opportunity to impact lives on the social and spiritual dimension and phenomenal impact on the financial when you start doing the math. So that's the kind of impact that the companies we invest in can have on the lives of their supply chain in this case, not just their worker. Their workers are great and they're getting salaries, 
but the people growing the coffee are the suppliers to this company, and they're getting an opportunity for an income unlike anything they've ever seen before. So if I understood you correctly, their yields triple to quadruple, and the commodity price itself per weight or volume is six to eight times what commodity, you know, just rudimentary commodity coffee is. Right. And the cost to do that Mm. doesn't mean that their price ends up being quite six to eight, but in total, you're still seeing them getting a 10x increase over where they started and built community that supports one another so they're not living life alone. And this is a country that had suffered a genocide that people may be familiar with from the Hotel Rwanda, where Burundi is a neighboring country that experienced similar problems back in its history. And the people that we've invested in are creating jobs in places where that genocide occurred. So I don't mean to overrepresent my understanding of that, the extent to which the conflict in Rwanda did spread to Burundi. But if I'm not mistaken, you have Hutu and Tutsi people groups in both of those countries. And I would imagine, you know, at one point in time, obviously, deep tensions. Is that, are, is, has that been... Do you see integration of these different... We, we do see that. We see people working together. We see just phenomenal transformation in the lives of people. We see reconciliation of people working together. I've been to Rwanda multiple times in, in, in my career and had a chance to see that firsthand. So it's, yeah. Those are just glorious stories. Challenge to my faith when I say, wow, they forgave that. Could I have forgiven mm-hmm. some of that? So mm-hmm. it's off topic probably for our podcast today, but it's wonderful to be an investor that is investing to support that ongoing transformation of a community. That's part of what we do. Well, uh, David, I think our audience also is, you know, uh, maybe not automatically by default thinking about business investing that way, but no, no one can help but be uh, excited, I think, to hear about the power of business and its creative capacity and its capacity to create wealth for people who previously did not enjoy it to then also have that heal what would be considered almost irreconcilable divisions between people. So that's an exciting story. So you begin... And hopefully our community understands that it's only businesses that create wealth. Mm -hmm. Government doesn't create wealth. Nonprofits don't create wealth. Mm -hmm. It takes the wealth creation engines of businesses, men and women that are leading businesses to create the wealth, to create the jobs. That's the way to transform society. I want to come back to some of the specifics of the on the investment side a little later, but you got us started on some stories. And Adrian, you, I know you you had some lines of questioning that you wanted to pursue around the stories. Do you want to keep going with that? Yeah, I'd love to hear more about some of the different opportunities that you have found. And maybe if you could touch on, because as we know, when it comes to investing, there are some risks. Sometimes there are some challenges that you probably faced numerous times along the ways that you either learned valuable lessons from or could really share that we could really see what would it be like for people to get involved with something like this. Sure. Always a risk. If I went to if I went to the second company that we invested in, it was a chain of Montessori schools in Nairobi, a chain of six schools in David's wisdom in December of 2019, I want our audience to reflect on December 2019, <laughs> we invested in what I thought would be the safest investment that we would do. It was a nine-year-old school, same CEO, founder. You get students. For-profit schools are the preferred model for any parents 
in much of Africa because the public schools frequently will have a hundred or more students per classroom and teachers that are not as well equipped as any of the private schools. So any parent that can tries to get their students into a private school with low fees. These are not the high-end schools that may come to mind for those of us that live in the States. But this particular school chain, we were delighted. We were going to help them grow from six to maybe 12 campuses over the coming years. And then this little thing called COVID came along. So when you talk about risks, that was not in our PPM, I must say. We didn't have a global pandemic that that was going to shut down businesses. And that school was closed for 10 months from March through December of 2020. Now, about 40% of all the private schools in Kenya were permanently closed. They did not survive the pandemic. But what does it mean to be an impact investor? We, we, we focus on impact before financial return. We weren't able to do anything other than extend the loan, pray with the leader. And quite frankly, we created a version of a P loan because in the U.S., small businesses had government funds in the P, but in Africa, there was no such thing. So we created a P program and we had some of our investor community said we'd be delighted to do that. And we ended up helping bridge the gap. We kept the teachers on a quarter salary, but they were getting something versus nothing for that 10-month period. And I'm delighted to say I was with the CEO last week at our conference, and she's now added another school that she now has more revenue than she had in the school system and hundreds of students growing and learning. And uh, two of her school's students just competed and are on the Kenya National Chess Team, the youngest of whom is a 13-year-old girl named Zuri. So the phenomenal stories of impact of us being an impact investor and paying her loans and, and doing everything that she needs to do from an investment standpoint. So there's an example. Maybe another quick one. I was visiting one of our other clients in November last year and met a woman named Beatrice. This particular company helps farmers like Beatrice grow and harvest flowers pyrethrum flowers, which is a chrysanthemum-type flower. And Adrian, you may say, what's so important about flowers? Well, these particular flowers have pyrethrin at the center of their bloom, which can be turned into an organic pesticide. It's the most in-demand organic pesticide on the planet. This firm has now trained 20,000 Beatrices of the world and turned that into a robust pyrethrum business selling pyrethrum on global markets that this year that firm will do well north of five million in revenue that's a huge increase over our first investment in them three years ago and that's super exciting from an investment standpoint but from a missional standpoint a pyrethrum farmer like beatrice can earn 80 to 100 dollars per month per acre in kenya that's a minimum wage job when I was standing talking to Beatrice with my colleagues and looked over her shoulder, 150 feet up the hill was a cement block house connected to electric wires. She'd been living in a hut, mud hut, mud house, before she had the income from pyrethrum that she started growing four years ago that allowed her bill to build a whole new home that any of us would be more than delighted 
to visit or perhaps even to live in if we were in Kenya. That kind of impact comes from connecting global markets and their need to the poor farmers that were growing, in this case, a pyrethrum flower. I have so much to ask you about that, David. So just in terms of the scale, a typical farmer might be, begin growing them on what side, how many acres would they typically farm? Typical, typical smallholder farmer is going to have about two and a half acres. It varies by where you are in the country. This is up at elevation, but there's a huge part of Kenya that could be growing these pyrethrum flowers. So the ability to scale this thing that we said at the start, we thought this company could get to 50,000 farmers. That would impact 350,000 lives if you think about average family size in Africa. So huge opportunities for impact uh, across thousands and thousands of families in Kenya. Well, if I'm doing the math right, then that's about $3,000 a year on a two and a half acre plot if you're at about 80. So $3,000 a year, family of, I don't know what family sizes are, four, five, six, something like that. But you're still, I mean, compared to per capita income for the general population, that's got to be massive increase. It's a massive increase. You're, the farmer's not yet going to, well, almost never going to plant everything in pyrethrum. They're still going to have food crops to feed their okay. families. Mm -hmm. That's, in fact, what they do. But they could do one to two acres and leave half. Mm -hmm. That would probably be the maximum mm -hmm. that they would do. But you're exactly right. That house being built is that the income from that is what allowed this farmer to do it. And the other really challenging thing when we were there, we went to a, the next farmer over, another woman whose grandmother and growing the pyrethrum, and all of the vegetable crops were totally withered. There's a real drought in Kenya a year back. Now the rains have come, uh, thankfully. Uh, but the rest of the farmers only growing food didn't have food for their families because of the drought, but pyrethrum is drought resistant. Doesn't yield as many flowers, but they could still grow the flowers. And the grandmother was saying she's feeding her grandchildren because she had income from the every two weeks, they take the flowers to the, a local collection point. They're weighed, measured, and a cell phone is given a receipt and they're paid for the flowers within seven days of receipt of those flowers when they get back and are tested. It's a phenomenal impact in these communities. So you have a video on the Talenton website. And for those of our listeners who are thinking, how do I learn more about this? TalentonLLC.com. So Talenton, T-A-L-A-T-O-N-L-L-C.com. We'll have it in the show notes. But if you're listening right now and you can't wait to get to the show notes that you can look there you know, hit pause here. And you have a video about this company, I believe on the website, Contegra. Yeah. T-A-L-A-N-T-O-N. What did I LLC. say? I'm sorry. Oh, just, okay. just to make sure, but yeah, uh, that's fine. Okay. People will find it. Yeah. Yes. And so that's exciting. W one of the other elements of this story, just for people to under put this in um, context is if I'm not mistaken, of course, it varies from setting to setting because the purchasing power parity of a dollar in one place is not necessarily identical to the same elsewhere. But generally, uh, you, a good rule of thumb is that about $2 per day per capita and below is considered extreme poverty. Between 2 and $4 per day is considered poverty. And between 4 and $6 per day is considered sort of borderline you know, on poverty. So to have $1,000 a year, for, or yeah, I think that would be the rate per acre grown. And let's say you have four, right there, what you've done is... you. And not quite a dollar boost per capita per, you know, per day 
from that, just from that one step, that's, that is incredible movement. Those are connected to global markets. That's the difference of this model is the company that we invest in wasn't Beatrice, right? We invested in Contegra, but Contegra is the one. So by investing upstream in a company that can create this kind of income, that's the model that is talent in, in action. And what I love about this particular story is that in, I'm sure it's not strictly limited to countering the spread and prevalence of malaria and mosquito-borne diseases generally, but I think we in the West have just such a limited understanding of what role malaria still plays in the world. If I'm not mistaken, David, you I, you know you probably know these numbers better than I, but I think it's somewhere each year 290 million people will contract malaria and 400,000 per year will die from that nearly i think it's 94 percent of those that die are under five years of age so it, it is it's it's just phenomenal oh and the synthetic version of pyrethrium is now you're finding strains of mosquitoes that are becoming increasingly resistant to the synthetic strain so the natural form of pyrethrium at least so far is one that they have not yet developed a resistance to so you're, it's not just growing flowers that are valued like for display. It's a chemical that is essential in battling this scourge of malaria. Well, it's, yeah, you got to get rid of pests if you're going to grow if you're going to grow crops. So insecticides are what's needed. So, yep. Well, that's amazing. So there's you've so you've talked about the coffee company in Burundi, and we've you've also talked about now. Contegra. And are there other stories that you would say oh, our listeners were yeah, really? Yeah, I'm happy to spend multiple times on stories. Let me give you one that really seems to have touched a lot of people. Anybody that's been to the developing world may understand that for people that are disabled in any way, they're very unlikely to ever get jobs. And a company called Masaka is a yogurt business in Rwanda. The founder just had a heartbeat to try and do something to try and provide a job for a deaf mother who had a child in a coma and the person, the people in the hospital couldn't treat the child because they didn't know what had happened and they couldn't talk to the mom because the mom was deaf. The founder said, we're going to do something about that. And he went and uh, quite frankly, bought assets out of a bankruptcy for this Masaka Creamery, which today is a business that has 60 employees. 60% of them are deaf. Everybody in the entire business speaks sign language, and the people have moved up in the management team. They source milk from 2,000 dairy farmers. It's a million-dollar-plus revenue business, and they're committed to continuing to hire more and more deaf people to make sure they always have more than half of their staff are deaf. And the really neat side benefit of this is that in Rwanda, Yogurt is most frequently used in children's lunches. What's one of the other major issues in Rwanda? But protein deficiency, which leads to mental and physical stunting of children. So by investing in a business that's creating jobs and incomes for deaf people and income for dairy farmers, that's all great. But the products that they're providing are actually helping to get protein in the mouths of kids. So the holistic benefit, again, around all of this is phenomenal. We've helped them with some technical assistance, which is a key part of our model. That's the ongoing post-investment support. 
to help them now bring in new equipment, new expertise to triple this business within the next two years. And they're on the path to doing that, to provide more jobs, more income, and more yogurt while while growing and scaling their business there in Rwanda. So that would be another fun example. And if I give you one other quick one in Rwanda that we're excited about, generally the mining industry isn't something that your audience or yours truly would have been running to invest in. But it turns out if you have a leadership team that really wants to bring redemptive mining to the continent and do things properly, safely, and in order, and not just mine the ore and send it to elsewhere to be processed and refined and all the value added to happen outside of country. We invested in a company called Power Resources International, which is, man, which is mining tantalum, highly important metal that's used in all of our cell phones for capacitors and those sorts of things. They are the very first mine that's actually mining the metal and refining it and processing it right there in continent, in Rwanda, with huge potential upside and impacting thousands of miners' lives, both on their own staff and what are called the artisanal miners, and bringing safety techniques and safety technology, not just to their own company, but the Rwandan government has now hired this company to teach other mining firms how to mine safely to try and save lives in the country. That's great. I mean, thank you for sharing that story. And can you maybe expand a little bit more on Talenton's structure and that model where, I guess, paint really a picture for our listener viewers how the dollars that come in through the door get allocated and how that structure with you partnering up with different organizations and how it helps out these individuals that you're really making an impact on. Yeah. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, we structured Talenton at the beginning, expecting that actually family foundations and donor advised funds as investment sources would be the principal way that we would invest. And we got some advice when we did this, that we needed to do a non-traditional private investment structure and that we needed to have a shorter window for people to redeem their capital. So we designed Talenton to actually allow people to redeem capital at the four-year point or any time thereafter. The amount they've invested and accrued returns, they can redeem. There's no dividends paid, but we issue quarterly statements to show people that. But that decision to serve investors means that now when we go to the entrepreneurs, we are principally doing debt or what we call venture debt. So debt, everybody understands quarterly interest payments and principal repayments would give us the cash flow to handle redemptions when an investor would like to redeem. But venture debt is really the unique model. We'll do a lower coupon debt and a 1% to 2% royalty on the revenues after we first invest. That gives us an equity-esque return to the extent we can help the companies grow and scale rapidly. We're not looking for tech unicorns. That's not what we do. If anything, we'd be looking for employment unicorns. We want to see companies that can grow and scale like that pyrethrum. If they can go impact 50,000 jobs over the course of the next four or five years, that's what we're looking for. And the company growing with the revenue share gives us the preferred way for us to do that. And note that in that structure, 
the company doesn't need an IPO. They don't need an exit. They don't need to have a way to redeem for us to redeem equity for us to get money back in the hands of our investors. So three quarters of everything we invest is that venture debt or debt. And a quarter will in fact be equity convertible notes, warrants, something that when the company sees an exit option in the future that we also could foresee, we'd allow, we'd be a participant in the upside for that company. That's the structure of how we try to do our work through a very rigorous due diligence process to make sure we're investing as wisely as we can to, to again, be here, well done, good and faithful servant, back to our biblical mandate. And setting things up in the U.S., so that I think you said it was in a registered fund. So, and I'm assuming it's under Reg D or is on some fashion or another. So for those of our listeners who are saying, what kind of, what language is this? I'll just give a quick primer on this. Earlier, for example, David used the term PPM. So that's a private placement memorandum, which is an obligatory document that's distributed to prospective investors who satisfy the stipulated criteria of each fund that is making this offer. In the case of Talenton, if I'm not mistaken, incidentally, since I'm on that subject, this is reserved for what are known as qualified clients and above. If you're wondering what a qualified client is, you can Google that to get more of the detail, but it's essentially not including your personal residence. You have $2.2 million of net worth and of that, at least $1.1 million invested at a particular firm that would be you know, sponsoring or offering this. So in any case, this is the Reg D is a special provision that allows non-public companies to be able to gather capital and to, to invest, therefore subsequently invest in various businesses. So that would must not have been, and that's not a small thing for you to have done that, David, with these companies, these operating companies being outside the U.S. Tell us that, because I think I'm not going to say that you're the first, but you're surely one of the few to the best of my knowledge, that has managed to accomplish that feat with foreign operating companies, but a fund that's available on those terms here in the U.S. Yeah, we're for your for your audience. We're a Delaware registered LLC that happens to be a public benefit company. That's another special specialty in the tax law that allows us to prioritize delivering public benefit and then financial returns instead of only focused on financial. So we're focused on multiple bottom lines. We did this to make it easy for people to invest in a U.S. company. Don't need You don't need to worry as an investor about the tax consequences overseas. We're handling that internal to the fund when we're investing in companies uh, across East Africa. That's the way we set this up. And then uniquely, for some of the audience, we, we allow people to invest out of a donor-advised fund. And many of your Wealth advisors will be working, managing a separately managed account inside of a donor advised fund or a family foundation. All of those people have also been able to invest from those sources into what we're doing. And then the donor advised fund sponsor counts as the qualified client. So that also helps with that regulatory issue. So I want to just clarify there one more thing for our audience who may not be familiar with the donor advised fund structure. We've talked about it many times on our show. But uh, not everyone's listened to every episode. So let me just summarize that. So, dear listener, what you have when it 
that when you make a decision to invest is you have several choices. Do I use money that's in an IRA or in a Roth IRA or that's in an after-tax just general brokerage account? Yes, all of those are ones that you can consider. But one that people often overlook is that you can actually invest charitable capital. And you're thinking, how in the world can I invest charitable capital? I thought I had given it away. The answer is that various charitable foundations have set up something that we'll informally call a charitable checking account or a charitable investing account where you can time your the realization of your charitable gifting on a on a schedule in your life that maybe coincides with some years in which you had some extremely big realized gains and you were looking to offset those maybe with exceptionally large charitable gifts to fund you know future giving or it may be that you just do it on a year in year out basis but the interesting feature of some of these donor advised funds not all charitable foundations admit or permit this but some do and they will allow you then advise the charitable foundation that's what a donor advised fund is advise that foundation that you would like to see some of your charitable capital not just given away but invested in one or another of the companies that they have, they themselves as a charitable foundation have examined and found meets their criteria. And on that basis, then they will pool your capital with others who are asking for the same direction of those funds to be then deployed with that end investment. And this makes without getting into a long financial planning <laughs> or investment investment advice model just this approach oftentimes is a, a favored one if in particular you're thinking that the likelihood of return on some is the risk is sufficiently high and the impact is sufficiently great that you might say you know what I'll just do that with a charitable dollar that's not a blanket prescription it's just an observation about one way in which people's thinking around these things proceeds but I Eric, exactly that. right. And just the conclusion for Talenton on that is it's invested. But then when you redeem it, if you choose to redeem it after four years time, it comes back into the donor advised fund and is given away just like any other gift from a donor advised fund. So the money is deployed for impact, isn't used up, we're pray and delivering growth along the years. And so more money is available to be given outside of the fund than you put into the fund is what we aspire to deliver. Yeah, excellent clarification on that too. So with the the with these different models that you've chosen, some warrants you mentioned in some cases, and some you know equity like features of royalties and such. Your founders, I imagine you have to be creative from time to time. But what have you found that founders in most cases prefer? Which of the various investment structures that you've you've offered them? It turns out that some version of venture debt is very attractive to the founders because they don't have to give up equity. We're both in, in, in harness together to grow a company profitably. They're, they're paying their cost of capital out of future revenue growth. So the business model kind of really works really well for the founders, works well for us. It works well for our investors. It really is a win-win-win all the way around the table. And I'm sure, you know, you mentioned the school as one instance of a setback. Obviously that's an exogenous event that affected a lot of businesses. So three cheers for you in, in managing to help that investment to proceed in that school to proceed. But I imagine if you've been doing this now, as you said, from 2019, we're four years into this, you've got a few scars and cigarette burns today that you didn't have four years ago what would what have been some general principles that you've learned as an as a 
capital allocator about recognizing an opportunity and and not being you know your eyes sort of just rose-colored glasses how do you assess essentially do proper due diligence on on these investments yeah we aspired when we launched talenton to be a world-class fund we were small we knew that was aspirational we certainly were not there but we were fortunate to get some really good advice and the person that chairs our investment committee uh, hervé sarto actually spent his day job managing Carvel Partners. Previously, that was a $12 billion private equity fund for the Cargill constellation of companies. I didn't know till last week when Hervé reviewed his bio for our audience at a big conference, he said the first fund he raised was $6.5 billion. So when we say we aspire to be a world-class fund, we know that we have people like Hervé and Dave Tomey on our investment committee, who's been the managing partner at Edgewater Fund. So we have another couple of billion dollar private equity fund. So we have people with deep expertise in addition to our management team that is helping us there. And their wisdom has helped us avoid many pitfalls, not all. And sometimes we've learned you do the very best job you can on due diligence. And fortunately, I can think of several instances where very late in the game, we found out something that precluded us from investing in a business. One of the one of the CEOs of a business was not treating women properly. Let me just leave it at that. And we obviously were not going to invest in a business led by somebody that was mistreating women. And we didn't find that out till late in the process. So we've tweaked our due diligence process to try and go more into some of the personal dynamics of the CEO and leadership teams from that. The other thing that we almost always see is that the financial sophistication and skills at each company, meaning CFO, is missing or lacking. So we'll say and we'll make a requirement either pre our first investment or we typically invest in tranches over time. So it may be before we'll put the second tranche in, we want to see a significant strengthening of the CFO capability. That is almost always one of the things that we're Pushing on and lessons learned and scars are we need to make sure that we have kind of teeth in the requirement that we need to have a CFO. And one of the companies did, in fact, hire a CFO, but the person was not up to snuff. And I think we knew that right out of the gate, but the CEO wasn't willing to let that person go and get the right person in the job previously. Well, guess what? Right now, literally today, we're interviewing a CFO candidate for that company because the first person that's been in this job for the last year was not doing the job. And we let it go too long without kind of calling the question on that front. So those are, uh, and yeah, key, key lessons learned. So early in our conversation today, David, you had indicated that one of the reasons that you had many of the projects or the operating companies, at least in East Africa was that the needs were particularly acute there. And so do you want to talk about how does that, I've really never even thought that along those lines, I guess I had thought that with a lot of the activity in Kenya in particular, that maybe that was a center of a lot of economic activity and perhaps in comparison to maybe some parts of Central Africa or Northern Africa that the, where I think conditions are more difficult, but the, that the needs were maybe, there'd been progress against poverty in ways. But apparently not. Yeah. Why did you choose East Africa? Yeah. You I, I wish, yeah, I, I created a slide last week for this conference I've been mentioning a couple of times, and I wish I could share with your listeners <laughs> the slides, but I'll paint it a picture here. 
If I were to show you a slide that shows you the percentage of people that are living in extreme poverty, and Eric, as you said, $1.90 and under is the actual technical definition of extreme poverty. Over the last 40 years outside of Africa, that percentage has dropped from 43% down to about 3%. So a huge line coming down over 40 years across the world outside of Africa. Now the line for Africa, I won't ask you guys to guess. So I'll give you the answer. That same line drawn on that same graph for Africa started at the exact same point 40 years ago. It was about 43, 44%. Today, it's about 35 or 36%. So Africa in my headline title, and I quoted somebody else, World Bank or others, I forgot the source of it, that Africa has failed to eradicate extreme poverty. Now, this is despite a thriving climate of some of the most rapidly growing economies in the world. And if you go into Kenya and you see the buildings and the skyscrapers and the vibrancy of the economy, that's true in Africa. That's not the Africa that we have from our youth that we're picturing. But despite the vibrancy of parts of Africa, the truth is that the continent has not tackled the extreme poverty issue well. There aren't enough jobs being created because the population growth continues to explode. The population in the next 25 years in Africa is expected to double to reach just under 2.5 billion people. So from about 1.3, 1.4 billion today to 2.5 billion. And without the jobs for people to be employed, you still end up with people in extreme poverty and huge percentage of people in extreme poverty. And there's hope where it's investing through the likes of what we're doing. There's policy changes. I'll go out on the limb and say it's not foreign aid. That's not, we've dumped trillions in foreign aid. That hasn't solved the issue. It needs to be some policy changes, good government and job creation through the private sector. That's what it's going to take. To move people out of extreme poverty. Well, so that was you. I think you largely just answered the question I was about to ask, but I'm going to pose it anyway, just to make sure that I didn't miss anything. So I usually think of poverty as associated with, a, in some cases, resource constraints. I mean, obviously, a really rich agricultural foundation is oftentimes an important precursor to development, but so also our access to world markets. And so that might be ports and roads and rail and shipping you know, and such. And then finally, and perhaps the most easily overlooked element of it all is the institutional framework so that a, that a contract is a contract and actually a court and a legal system will support the enforcement of that contract so that people can make de- to dependably take risks, low levels of corruption help, et cetera. So in this case, a financial infrastructure, the financial and the banking and lending and infrastructure. In this case, what would, is your sort of big, you know, large-scale diagnosis of why it is that Africa has lagged? But you put all those together, and then what the World Bank would further show is that what Eric, you and Adrian and your colleagues and your whole industry do wisely for people is that you generally are looking for market rate risk-adjusted return when you're advising clients what to do. And when people look at Africa, it's foreign. They don't know it. They don't. They think it's risky. There's corruption. There's currency risk. It's all of that ends up being put into the soup. And what the World Bank would tell us, depending on which study you look at, is that there's a missing middle of something between one and four 
trillion dollars of capital that doesn't get invested in businesses in Africa, whereas if those businesses were in the U.S. or Europe or Japan or Australia, they would get the capital. But the capital doesn't flow because the perceived risk is so high. So we need to knock down those perceived risks in order to try and get the capital markets to start providing the capital to the businesses that need growth capital in order to grow and scale. So the missing middle is a description of what exists, but the reasons for it are what you just laid out, just that people have not been there. But what I encourage people to do is go back and look at Asia 40 years ago. What have been the growth engines? What have been the revenue engines, the profit engines, the investment engines? Look at what's happened to, to China and the Asian economies over the you know Asian tigers of my youth, right? Those countries now have exploded in their GDPs and their income and what it's, how people's lives have been transformed over the last 40 years. Those of us that do what I do believe that Africa is now at the starting line of where Asia was 40 years ago and that the growth engines of the future driven by the huge demographics, are in fact in Africa. And Meg Whitman, the ambassador to Kenya right now, who used to be CEOs of of some well-known companies in the States, and Meg thinks that the garment industry is moving from Asia to Africa in a major way, to Kenya in particular, and our next investment that we will announce in the next week or two is actually a real rapidly growing garment company that's manufacturing ethically and in fabulous working conditions and everything, uh, jobs right now for 600 people. And that company thinks that they're going to get to 6,000 people within the next couple of years. But again, the global trade, changes in trade favoring low cost is now becoming Africa, not Asia. And the people that need jobs are in Africa. So the winds are blowing properly to try and make a difference. Oh, I think that is so exciting. I just, you know, I think back, Adrian, of course, you're too young for this, but David and I once upon a time walked the earth in the olden days when there were these massive amounts of the percentage of extreme poverty around the world were, you know, some of the numbers that you say, and there, the world was pondering how in the world do we resolve this? Some solutions where we don't, we just let them, we just let them wither And it was called lifeboat ethics. Garrett Hardin was the proponent of this particular outlook. And others said, no, that's not. And good, you know, uh, good for the world in this respect that, that, that ruthless or sort of, I'll say ruthless judgment about the impoverished people of the world was not something that drove policy, but instead people made efforts. And here you've seen so much of that rectified. So let's hope the same. It's exciting to hear you say that, David, because obviously you're, much closer to it than the rest of us. Well, and we think we think that the people that, that have invested, it's not like you write a check and go away, send out reports every quarter showing what's going on in these companies. Here's the portfolio. Here's the population, or here's the employment growth. We ask people to pray for our clients because that's an important part of what we think transforms lives. And that's the kind of thing that it's, it's, a, it's an investment that brings joy. And it's not single bottom line. It brings joy because those dollars are doing so much good half a world away. And we the investors that want to invest with meaning and purpose, it really is tangible. It's not just whitewash of some language on a sheet of paper. 
Well, David, I would re- be remiss if I didn't do two things. One, which is just to say to our listeners, first of all, thank you. If you've been listening to this point, understandably, you're just as excited about this set of stories and about this potential as we are. And so we thank you for sticking with us. But I also want to hasten to add that nothing that we've said today isn't really meant to be a blanket prescription for people or some sort of necessarily an encouragement that you just rush out and irrespective of any due diligence, start investing in talent. And that's not our aim. Really, our aim here was to bring to light the fantastic story of using business and impact investing in a way that can be transformative. And that is, you know, that's number one for investors. Of course, it does take capital to drive these sorts of things. But for those of you that are interested to learn more, you certainly can go straight to Talenton's website and do exactly that. The other thing that I just want to say is, David, it's really a tremendous privilege for us to have you join us here today. I mean, I know that you're a busy guy and for you to take an hour out to be with our audience here today has just been really a great privilege for us. And we really thank you for that. A joy for me. So Eric and Adrian, thank you both for what you're doing to bring really interesting opportunities and insights to your listeners. Well, and a final word then to you, our listeners, is if you find this sort of storytelling and insight important and valuable, then the best way, the best thing you can do for to promote it is to share it with your friends. You can just send them a link to this episode and have them listen. If you haven't subscribed yet, you also can subscribe to this show because we have you, as if you've been a longtime listener, you know that we've had five or six different instances in which we've brought people who are very playing a really critical, I'll say, bleeding edge role in impact investing in a variety of settings and frameworks to to your, you know, to you, our audience. And so if you can share that and give us a rating and that sort of thing, that will really help others discover the show. So we'll be back next week hopefully also with Roshan on the mend. And um, we'll be able then to, to bring you another topic here with the Retirement Lifestyle Show. Schedule a conversation with Roshan, Adrian, or Eric today at retirementlifestyleshow.com. Roshan and Eric are certified financial planner practitioners. They, along with Adrian, are investment advisor representatives and serve clients across the U.S. with financial planning and investment advice through RTA Wealth. If you found this show helpful, gain knowledge, or enjoy the time you spent with us, tell your friends and leave us a five-star review. This will help others discover the show. To access our show notes, to download any of the tools mentioned in today's podcast, to ask us a question or to schedule a conversation, go to retirementlifestyleshow.com. All opinions expressed by podcast hosts and guests are solely their own. While based on information they believe is reliable, neither Arate Wealth nor its affiliates warrants its completeness or accuracy, nor do their opinions reflect the opinion of Arate Wealth. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and should not be regarded as specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. The show hosts offer investment advice through Arte Wealth Advisors, LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor, and securities through Arte Wealth Management, LLC, member FEMRA, SIPC, and NFA. Finally, our music is The Chance by Jason Shaw in Audionautics. It's part of the YouTube Audio Library and it's licensed under a Creative Commons license. I am Ray Voices. 
Thank you for listening.